reading from Second Chronicles chapter 29 and verses 20 to 36. This is where Hezekiah restores worship to the temple after a period of apostasy. So these are God's words. Then Hezekiah the king arose early and gathered the princes of the city and went up to the house of Yahweh, that is, the temple. And they brought seven bullocks and seven rams and seven lambs and seven he-goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of Yahweh. So they killed the bullocks, and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. And they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood upon the altar. They killed also the lambs and sprinkled the blood upon the altar, and they brought near the he-goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands upon them, and the priests killed them, and they made a sin offering with their blood upon the altar to make atonement for Israel, for the king commanded that the ascension offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. And he set the Levites in the house of Yahweh with cymbals, with lyres, and with harps, according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king's seer and Nathan the prophet, for the commandment was of Yahweh by his prophets. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets, and Hezekiah commanded to offer the ascension offering upon the altar. And when the ascension offering began, the song of Yahweh began also, and the trumpets together with the instruments of David king of Israel. And all the assembly prostrated, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the ascension offering was finished. And when they had made an end of offering, the king and all that were present with him bowed and prostrated. Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praises unto Yahweh with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed and prostrated. Then Hezekiah answered and said, Now ye have consecrated yourselves unto Yahweh. Come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of Yahweh. And the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were of a willing heart brought ascension offerings. And the number of the ascension offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bullocks, 100 rams, and 200 lambs. All these were for an ascension offering to Yahweh. And the consecrated things were 600 oxen and 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few, so they could not flay all the ascension offerings. Wherefore, their brothers, the Levites, did help them till the work was ended and until the priests had sanctified themselves. For the Levites were more upright in heart to sanctify themselves than the priests. And and also the ascension offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings and every other ascension offering. So the service of the house of Yahweh was set in order, and Hezekiah rejoiced, and all the people, because of, what, of that which God had prepared for the people, for the thing was done suddenly. These are God's words. Please be seated. Now that we have a decent understanding of the importance of worshipping as God requires, and of what is happening when we worship as God requires... We come to the practical questions of how to actually do worship, and obviously we are and we have been doing worship all this time, but it is right and proper for you to want to know why we do it this particular way. It is right and proper that we teach you that you should be able to justify our practice from Scripture and that you should examine indeed what we do and look at it in Scripture, and see that it is in accordance with the biblical pattern. 
It is also wise for you to be able to see where the boundaries are for legitimate worship, which we will look at to some extent another time. Because as you know, many other churches, Jared mentioned this in the psalm as well, they do things quite differently to us. And you need to know how to charitably judge their practice. As is usually the case, there are two ditches here. On the one hand, you might be tempted into an attitude that says our way is the only true way, and that is the mindset of a cult, not a church. On the other hand, there are many Christians who would say that it really doesn't matter at all what our worship looks like, because what God cares about is the spirit behind the worship, not its outward form. After all, did not Jesus condemn the scribes and the Pharisees for outwardly appearing righteous, but inwardly being full of uncleanness and hypocrisy? And does not God tell us through David that he delights not in sacrificing animals and has no pleasure in burnt offerings, but rather that the sacrifices of God are a contrite and broken spirit? These things are true. And yet, how does someone with a broken and contrite spirit actually approach God to worship him? Does he ignore or dismiss the outward form of that worship? Or does he fearfully examine what God says about proper worship and try to carefully discern and closely observe the outward form that worship should take? Look at Genesis chapter 4. In process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto Yahweh, And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And Yahweh had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had no respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his face fell. And Yahweh said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy face fallen? If thou doest well, shall it not be lifted up? And if thou doest not well, sin croucheth at the door, And unto thee shall be its desire, but do thou rule over it. Why does God accept Abel's offering but not Cain's? The answer is partly in the text. God himself says, if you do well, indicating that Cain has not done well. His offering was not a good one. It may be that he should have brought a blood sacrifice, that is, I think, the majority opinion of Reformed commentators historically, but I'm not sure the text intends for us to infer that, because the term that is used here for offering is actually the term that is used in the Law of Moses for a tribute offering, which is often often translated as a grain offering or a cereal offering. And this makes it surprising, in fact, that Cain's offering is uh, not accepted while Abel's is, because, of course, Abel's offering is not from the ground. It is not a cereal offering of any kind. It is an animal offering. The text itself gives us a clear indication of the true problem with Cain's offering and the way that it contrasts it with Abel's. Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. Now, the fat was always devoted to God under the temple system because it was the best part. If you've ever had biltong, you know very well the fat is the best part. It is what gives it the best flavor. What we are seeing here is that Abel, by faith, understands that God requires the best of what he has. Cain, it is clearly implied, brings, you know, whatever. Just something that he grew and figured was good enough. But the whole point of the tribute offering was to show homage, to show your dependence and your respect for your Lord. And so Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, 
Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he had witness borne to him that he was righteous, God bearing witness in respect of his gifts, and through it he being dead yet speaketh. This is what is really at stake in worship. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. You see, when someone who comes to worship God comes believing that he will accept that worship simply because it is well-intended or authentically offered or sincerely meant, what he is really doing is he is coming to worship God with the very opposite of a humble and contrite heart. He is not worshiping in faith. There is a spirit of Abel in worship and there is a spirit of Cain. The spirit of Abel is a spirit that operates by faith, the conviction of things hoped for, and the assurance of things not seen. Chiefly, in this case, the heavenly Jerusalem is the thing that is not seen, that forms the model for our worship. But the spirit of Cain is the spirit that Jared talked about, the spirit of presumption, the spirit that sees and feels only what is happening in the church here on earth, not what is happening in the heavenly places. And so it thinks that it can improve on what is happening in the church and make it more exciting or interesting or sincere or profound or authentic or relevant or whatever catchphrase may be in vogue. Nadab and Abihu worshipped in the spirit of Cain, offering strange fire before the altar, fire that seemed good to them but did not follow the heavenly pattern. And a man like this may feel like he is worshipping in faith, But faith is not sincerity, and faith is not wishful thinking, and faith is not especially self-reliance. Faith is trust and knowledge and loyal reliance on God and his word by relying on his own intuitions about worship rather than on God's word. A man who comes to God to worship as he pleases is actually worshiping faithlessly. And so he is unable to offer an excellent sacrifice, a true sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving because he does not know God's ways or maybe he has not reflected on what those ways mean for how to approach God or possibly he has simply not taken to heart that reflection so as to actually do it, to submit to it. Now, I'm not going to spend any time today looking at the practices of other churches and how we should judge those practices. I will do a shorter sermon on that at some point and how, how we should discern the way that other people worship. Like what is the, the real boundary for worship if you go into a church and they're worshiping in a certain way? Um, should you consider that to be something that you can be part of or not? Um, I don't want to be the sort of church that says you can only worship at our church. Um, in fact, it is important at this point to say that we are all presumptuous in many ways. And even the most carefully considered worship offered with the most faithful and zealous and earnest of hearts, as I hope ours are, is completely insufficient for the holiness of God. It is useless in God's sight. It deserves nothing but fiery judgment if not for the intercession of the Lord Jesus. 
And it's important to remind us of this, lest we be guilty of a haughty spirit about our worship here at Redwood. Oh, well, our worship is true to the Reformed tradition. Our worship is more thoughtfully constructed. Our worship is more biblical. Our worship is liturgical, like God wants it to be. Our worship is more beautiful, more reverent. It's better than those other churches. There is a sense in which these things may be true, but that is not the comparison that God would have us make. He would not have us judge ourselves against the worship of other congregations here in New Zealand or across the world, but rather against the congregation in heaven. I think it is safe to say that when we each join that congregation in heaven at the end of our lives, we will come to realize the surprising number of ways in which our worship here falls short. I do not know what those ways are, or I would try to correct them. But I am certain that our worship is not the be-all and end-all of worship for the universal church. It is also important to remember that some presumption may be well-intended and some not. And while being well-intentioned does not excuse sin, God does bear with our weaknesses and he does overlook our faults for the sake of his son. Not all presumption is high-handed. David himself dared to worship God presumptuously before he was brought back to reality by God striking Uzzah dead for touching the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that after that, David broke off delivering the Ark to Jerusalem for some time. It says David was displeased. It is hard to imagine that he was not re-examining what he was doing, and rightly so. He had not intended to be high-handed against God. He was led astray by his enthusiasm. We know that he was a man after God's own heart, but we also know that he was a man of great passion. If you think about what happens with, um, what was his name? The the husband of Abigail, the man whose name meant fool. David was going to rush out there and kill that man, and Abigail had to talk him down. He was a man of impulsive and extreme passion. So he was very excited, well, I might even say very cautiously, ecstatic, to bring the ark to Jerusalem. But in his zeal, at least at first, he did it wrongly. His zeal was not according to knowledge. And so I believe it is with many churches today. And no doubt, so it is in our church, at least in some respects. Of course, not every difference in how churches worship is even an error at all. Not every difference between us or difference in worship is a mistake. And it's really important to remember that God has not given us a written liturgy in Scripture that we must follow. He has not given us a blueprint that describes every bolt and every beam and how they fit together. Even in the case of the Old Testament temple, of which we are the fulfillment, God provided a pattern to Moses, but not a blueprint. He included specific details that needed to be present, but he did not provide an architectural drawing He did not dictate the construction down to the last nail. He gave the overall form that the temple needed to take, the major dimensions, the features, and he left it up to the craftsmanship and the wisdom of men to decide how they were going to implement these. In the same way, he does not specify every word that the priests had to say in the temple service. He did not provide a script. He provided a template, a structure that according to wisdom, the priests would fill in as seemed best to them. I think it is safe to say that the worship that was restored by Hezekiah in our passage today 
would have looked quite different in many of these details to the worship that was instituted by Moses, precisely because different people will fill those details in differently. Now, here is the application for us under the new covenant, where we are given even more freedom as sons of God rather than as children under a tutor. It is entirely legitimate for different churches to follow quite different liturgies, using different words, different songs, allowing for all kinds of different expressions of our common faith, provided that they follow the basic template for worship that God has set out. If you start to study the history of liturgy, or even just do some searching for liturgies online, you will quickly discover how varied they are. I was brought up in the Roman Catholic Church, which has many problems, but some of its elements of liturgy have actually been incorporated into ours, and some have been rejected, and some elements of reform liturgies have been incorporated into ours, and some have been rejected. And some of the things that we have written are um, our own concepts, but hopefully taken from Scripture. I largely wrote the liturgy that we use, with Jared's help, and no doubt that is reflected in it both for better and for worse. You will see in our liturgy a, a man who was raised in the Roman Catholic Church and, and loves certain aspects of that liturgy. And you will see in our liturgy a man who was raised, uh, was you know, state-schooled in New Zealand and understands the limitations of um, Kiwi education. It is part of the glory of Christ's body that he permits us to create such things as best we're able to reflect his wisdom in our own unique ways. Here's an analogy. Think of hymn writing. Imagine how much less glorious our worship would be if God had only allowed a single man to write all our hymns. But because they are written by so many people with such varied traditions and such varied backgrounds and such varied educations and such varied skills and knowledge... We have a great abundance of expression and melodies, some more loved by some and some more loved by others. And in the same way, God allows his churches to create many liturgies with the same effect of increasing the glory and the beauty of his worship around the world. And I suspect that in heaven, there are probably some set liturgies which have been handed down, which were written by some of the great saints of history, not necessarily saints that we even know about, and that every... Lord's Day, they come and they have to decide which liturgy should we use today, just as they decide which hymns should we sing today. I'll talk more about how we chose the words of our liturgy next week, but today what I want to focus on is how all of these liturgies, if they are faithful to Scripture, follow the same basic template, the same general structure, and they use this as an outline, and then they fill it in using their own unique style, their own unique language, their own unique preferences. And here's something to think about in heaven. What language is the liturgy in? I don't know. Do they, do they know all the languages? Is the curse of Babel completely reversed in heaven? Probably. Do they understand all the languages? I'm sure they must do. Makes for an interesting thought. So what is the structure of liturgy that Scripture gives us? We've seen... In previous sermons, that God sets a pattern for worship in Exodus, especially Exodus 24, where he meets with Israel for the first time at Sinai. And this event creates a basic template for all of Israel's worship that follows after. Now, there is a lot going on in Exodus. It's more than just Exodus 24. It really starts in Exodus 20. 
and this makes it a little confusing to sift through and discern what's happening, but we do clearly see three major elements. Firstly, God calls Israel to himself. He summons them to worship him, and he also lays down the conditions for doing so. So here is that call, and I'm mistaken, it's Exodus 19 even, not 20. So Exodus 19, verses 9 to 11, Yahweh said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and may also believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto Yahweh, and Yahweh said unto Moses, Go unto the people, and sanctify them, make them holy, set them apart, today and tomorrow, let them wash their garments, and be ready against the third day, for the third day Yahweh will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Secondly, after this, God meets with Israel to give them his law. If we skip down to Exodus 20, we read that God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And for the next three chapters, he gives a summary of his law, and then he gives various applications of that law. So the first part of chapter 20 is the summary of the law, the Ten Commandments. And then the rest of the chapter 20 and chapter 21 and chapter 22 is all about how to apply it. He is teaching Israel his word and then applying it to their lives, which, of course, is the very same template that we try to follow in our instruction here at Redwood. And thirdly, after this, the worship comes to its climax as God shares a fellowship meal with Israel through the representation of their elders. In chapter 24, he summons the elders specifically, which is not actually a new call to worship, but rather a call to closer fellowship. So in Exodus 24, verses 1 and 2, and then 9 and 11, we read, He said unto Moses, Come up unto Yahweh, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near unto Yahweh. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the very heaven for clearness. And upon the nobles of the sons of Israel, he laid not his hand, and they beheld God and did eat and drink. This fellowship meal establishes the pattern that completes all of Israel's worship. At the tabernacle and the temple after it, Israelites could eat and drink with God at a distance, as their elders had done on Mount Sinai. The elders had come halfway up Mount Sinai, and in the same way, every worshiper could enter the court of the temple, but as the elders had not ascended to the peak, they were not allowed to ascend to the peak, so Israelite worshippers could not enter into the holy place, because they were waiting for the one like Moses, even Jesus himself, who God would raise up to lead the way to the peak of the true mountain, the heavenly Zion, the holy place in the spiritual realm, after which the temple was modeled, the actual center and highest point of the world. Now, this is actually the most significant point of discontinuity that we have with the Old Testament sacrificial system. Most of the discontinuity between our worship and their worship is simply in the form of fulfillment. We are spiritually doing what the Israelites were physically modeling through types and shadows. 
Remember, we've seen that there's really no sharp disconnect between the temple worship before Christ and the Lord's Day worship after his ascension. Our New Testament worship is not fundamentally different to theirs, but rather it is the full substance of theirs. They offered physical sacrifices, and we offer spiritual sacrifices, and they had a physical temple, and we are the spiritual temple. So the model on which Israel's worship was based is, in fact, our worship. But there is one huge difference that remains even after we adjust for all the types and the shadows. And that difference is this. We eat at God's very table. We recline in his bosom like the apostle that Jesus loved at the Last Supper. We are not kept at arm's length. But having entered into heaven itself through Christ, we have access to draw near to God with boldness, access that no Israelite would have dared to show lest he be struck dead. This is what we learn in the culmination of the argument in the book of Hebrews. And this is why the author is so aghast, so appalled that his Jewish readers should want to return to temple worship, which could never provide true access and complete fellowship with God. So we have this pattern, the basic template of Exodus. We have a call to worship. We have instruction in which God shapes his people through his word. He reworks them and refashions them into something suitable for his presence, which is to say that he sets them apart from the world and consecrates them for his own use. And then we have communion, the fellowship meal with God in which mutual participation between God and his people takes place at the table. That's a very basic template, but scripture expands on this in Leviticus, especially in Leviticus 9, which we have read in the past. I won't read that now for the sake of time, but Leviticus 9 clarifies the structure and solidifies it by including a couple more elements. I'd encourage you to look through it to see for yourselves that there are three major sacrifices, just as there are in the reading that we had today. You find these repeatedly throughout the Old Testament after this. The first is the sin offering, the guilt offering. Anyone coming to worship God must offer this first. It is always the first offering. Why? Well, because you have to put away sin. It separates you from God. You can't come into God's presence sinful. Leviticus Leviticus 9 tells us that the sin offering is for atonement. Now, of course, the death of an animal cannot really atone for sin, but it is a symbol a physical expression of the spiritual reality that the worshiper deserves to die for his sin and offers the animal in his place. How does this apply in New Testament worship? Well, obviously, there is no need for a symbolic atonement when we have a true atonement through the blood of Jesus. But there remains an important principle to consider, which is the need to be made pure in order to approach God. We know from Scripture that this is through confession. For John tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we wish to be purified by God, to have confidence of entering into his presence, we must confess our sin to him first. We fall on his mercy. We ask him to cleanse and purify us. And of course, this is the very thing that we do in our worship. Before we begin the the full service, we first sing praises to God and then immediately we confess our sins. I've used the example of wiping your feet when you come into someone's house for dinner. Hebrews 12, which we've looked at a great deal already, actually applies this for us, saying, therefore, let us also, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight 
and the sin which doth so easily beset us. In other words, since we have this cloud of saints surrounding us, this extension of the Shekinah, Shekinah, as they say in Australia, glory cloud of Yahweh himself, should we not remove from ourselves the sin that clings like filth in order to be fitted for the presence of these, this great cloud of witnesses and, of course, the cloud of God himself? Now, Hebrews is speaking of the Christian life in general here, but the whole context of the book is worship. And the application that it goes on to make in Hebrews 12 is specifically with regard to worship. This is only fitting, for if we are to set aside sin in our everyday lives, how much more when we come to the heavenly Jerusalem to present ourselves before God? Or, you could put it another way, and I'll return to this point later, since we are to lay aside sin when we come to worship God and be transformed by him, this should set the pattern of our lives as we return to the world and extend that transformation into it. Okay, so the first offering is the sin offering, which is fulfilled in confession of sin. The second is the ascension offering. This is usually translated burnt offering because it gets burned up. But the Hebrew word ola literally means ascension. Interesting side note, none of the Hebrew offerings actually have the word offering in them. It's always, it's just ascension or sin, for instance. Quite, quite strange to read and difficult to translate into English. So the idea of the ascension offering is that it represents the worshiper. So we, we saw in our passage that uh, in Second Chronicles, when you present an offering, you lay your hand upon it first. This is in order to impart of yourself to it symbolically. The offering represents the worshiper, but this time it is not his death that is being represented, but rather his ascending into the heavenly places, into God's glory cloud. The animal is transformed into fire and smoke and it rises up to heaven, and so symbolically are you. An important feature of the ascension offering that you notice in Leviticus 9 is that it is delivered to Moses piece by piece. It must be carefully cut up. Certain parts must be washed before it is ready to be burned. It must be properly prepared, in other words. And I think that there is a good argument to be made that this symbolically represents the work of the word of God upon our lives. Remember, an Israelite would actually attend synagogue every Sabbath day. This was not a late invention. We tend to think of synagogue as you know, the things that happened around the time of Jesus. But in fact... It was something instituted by God from the beginning, although it was not called a synagogue until Greek became the dominant language in Israel. Look at Leviticus 23. Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the sons of Israel, and say unto them, The set feasts of Yahweh, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations. You know what a convocation is? A convocation is an assembly, and usually this is translated synagogue in the Greek Old Testament. That's just what synagogue means, assembly. So the feasts of Yahweh, you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, assemblies. Even these are my set feasts. And he goes on to describe seven different feasts. And the first of which is, six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. A holy convocation or assembly, you shall do no manner of work. It is a Sabbath unto Yahweh in all your dwellings. So the very first of the feast days that God establishes is the weekly Sabbath. We tend to think of feast days as yearly things, and the rest of them are yearly, but the first is a weekly feast, and it is explicitly called a convocation, an assembly, a summons. 
This is the origin of the synagogues, as all Israel gathered on the Sabbath in their towns to learn from the law from the Levites who lived among them. But then they went up to the temple, and they did not receive instruction like this at the temple. The temple was dedicated to sacrifice. All the Sabbaths of the year, they received instruction in their towns. And on special feasts, they would travel to Jerusalem to feast with God, having already received that instruction. Nonetheless, when they offered sacrifices to God, that instruction was symbolically represented by the careful preparation of the ascension offering before burning it. Which is why I believe Hebrews chapter 4 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and quick to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. What is the significance of this sword within Hebrews, which is all about the fulfillment of Israel's temple worship? We're accustomed to the general imagery of the sword of the Spirit, but when applied within the context of temple worship and speaking specifically of dividing joints and marrow, it seems to me that we have a symbol of the dividing that takes place deep within us through the work of the Word of God and the application of the Holy Spirit. This is war imagery that is repurposed by the author of Hebrews using a word that can mean either a small sword or a knife to refer to the instrument that divides us up and prepares us as living sacrifices to God, just as the priests of the Old Testament prepared the ascension offerings as a shadow of this spiritual reality. So the idea is that the word of God is cutting us up and we've been put on the altar and then we are ascending into God's presence. And this being so, in our own liturgy, the ascension offering corresponds primarily to the teaching of the word that takes place after we have confessed our sins. When Jared teaches you from the Psalms, and indeed when we sing the Psalms and are shaped by them, and when I bring you other parts of God's word and seek to apply them to our lives, God works in all of this through the Holy Spirit to cut us up. He cuts into us. He divides us up. He separates out the good bits and the bad bits. And He makes us an offering suitable to ascend into his presence. Now, the actual burning of the offering under the Old Testament is fulfilled in the work of the Holy Spirit bringing us into the heavenly places, as we've already learned about. He is the fire within us that raises us up and we appear in the heavens before God. But the cutting up and the dividing and the washing of the animal is fulfilled through the word of God being preached. So that is the ascension offering. And the third is... The peace offering. This is also often translated as fellowship offering, which is a legitimate translation, unlike burnt offering. And sometimes it's also translated as thank offering. This is actually just a, in, in our passage here in Second Chronicles 29, for instance, we see thank offering. This is um, also a legitimate translation. It is a, a particular kind of peace offering. So when you came to Jerusalem, you could come... Uh, to give thanks specifically, in which case you would give a thanks offering as your peace offering, uh, or you could just offer it as a fellowship meal. So this offering is the one that is cooked as a meal, and it is shared between the worshiper and God. And some of it is burned on the altar, the best bits, the fat and so on, that's burned on the altar in order to raise it up into God's presence because he gets to eat the best bits, and the rest is cooked and eaten as a feast before God. And this, of course, corresponds to communion, to the Lord's Supper. 
We are invited into God's house for fellowship around his table, and we will look at the Lord's Supper in a separate sermon soon because we really need a separate sermon to fully um, do that justice. Now, there were other offerings that were often included in worship in the temple, aside from these three major ones. You've got the sin offering, the ascension offering, and the fellowship offering, but you also had some other offerings that could be given. The ones that we've looked at are the ones that were basically always given. They are always seen in descriptions of worship. But a common one that is also often included is one that we've seen before with Cain and Abel, the tribute offering. This is an offering of flour, oil, and wine. In other words, an offering of not only the fruit of your lands, but the fruit of your hands. It was an offering in which the Israelite returned to God the product of his successful dominion over what God had given him. He refined and he glorified the raw elements, the, the wheat, the, the olives, and the grapes. He refined these into bread and oil and wine, and then he returned them to God in thanks. And this is fulfilled partly in communion today because we use bread and wine, and I can assure you that from watching my excellent wife, uh, it is very rare to make bread without using oil. But it is also fulfilled in many churches today in what's called the offertory, which is where a collection is taken up. Usually you have a plate that's passed around, and I think it's worth considering how we might incorporate the tribute offering into worship. But it is not a requirement of worship in the same way that these others were, so we'll leave that for another day. All right, so we've seen that there are these three major beats to worship that are patterned in the Old Testament, the cleansing, patterned in the sin offering, the consecration, patterned in the ascension offering, and in the synagogue instruction every Sabbath, and the communion, which is patterned in the peace offering or the fellowship offering. And I trust that you can see how these are fulfilled in our own liturgy, but I also want you to see that this idea that worship should be ordered in this way is not our invention. This isn't something that Jared and I just made up. It's not something that some other people in America just made up and we thought it was a great idea. This goes back to the very earliest records that we have of worship. Let me give you just two examples. The first is from the Didache, which was written in the first century, sometime between 50 and 100 AD. So it might even be earlier than some of the books of the New Testament. It says, And on the Lord's day, Gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanks, first confessing your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure. And let no man, having his dispute with his fellow, join our assembly until they have been reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be defiled. For this sacrifice it is that was spoken by the Lord in every place and at every time. Offer me a pure sacrifice, for I am a great king, saith the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations. It's dedicated 14, 1 to 5. Now, this obviously focuses specifically on the Lord's Supper and the need to break bread together in a pure state, having first confessed our sins and indeed having nothing against our neighbors. And we will return to that in a future sermon very soon as the Lord's Supper does, as I say, really require a sermon of its own. But Justin Martyr, who wrote maybe 50 to 100 years later, we don't know exactly when this was written, but it was certainly not later than 157 AD, so still within living memory of the Apostles, he adds a bit more detail about the rest of the service in his first apology. This is what he says. On the day which is called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the countryside gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there is time. Then when the reader has finished, 
The president, in a discourse, admonishes and invites the people to practice these examples of virtue. Then we all stand up and offer, uh, together offer sacrifices of prayers, and as we mentioned before, when we have finished the prayer, bread is presented and wine. Now, if we assume that neither of these is intended to be an exhaustive description, there's no particular reason to think that it is, and that both describe a general pattern of worship inherited from the apostles themselves, we can easily see that putting them together, we get number one, confession of sin, number two, instruction and admonition, which we in our liturgy call consecration, number three, offering of prayers and thanksgiving, which we'll talk about next week, and number four, the Lord's Supper or communion. It's the same structure that we follow, right? In this way, our liturgy participates in the universal body of Christ by following the same pattern that has always been followed by the faithful throughout history. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't variations. Sometimes you will see the confession in different places, for instance, but the general pattern is there. When we participate in worship like this, we are participating in something that spans history. We are joining ourselves to an ongoing tradition set up by God himself, and we are taking up that baton to run our part of the great race that began in Eden and will end at the resurrection. Around this structure, this three-part template, we also place a call to worship at the beginning, which is patterned after God's call to Israel at Mount Sinai, and also after our Lord's call at the Last Supper, do this in memory of me. He calls us to do this on the Lord's day. Or more accurately, do this as my memorial, that is my covenant sign. We'll cover why we do the call to worship the way that we do next time when we look at the actual words that we've chosen. But right now I want to look at the very last item, which is on our template, our um, worship sheet, the commission. We open to the call to, to worship and we close with a commission. Now we have not seen a commission in scripture at least yet, But why do we close with a commission then? Hopefully it's not too difficult to discern. We've seen in many ways over the past few months that the Great Commission is at the center of Christian life and ministry. It is our prime directive, our general order one, to go out into the world in order to disciple the nations in God's ways. How can we do that if we remain in the heavenly places? If we come into worship and we never leave, obviously we will not be able to do our jobs. God summons us into his presence in order to cleanse and consecrate us for his use, and he enjoys communion with us as a promise of the final reward which we will receive, but then we have work to do. We have been purified and instructed so as to be fit for our great commission, and we mutually participated with God as a foretaste of the hope that we preach, and now it is time to go out and preach it. We ascend the mountain in order to receive, to be filled, so that we may descend the mountain again with something to give to those who are still down there. It would be awkward and incomplete to simply end our worship at communion without some recognition and reminder of what happens next. And so we commission the congregation in their duties for the rest of the week. You remember that I said earlier that Moses ascended to the top of Mount Sinai And Jesus ascended to the peak of the heavenly Mount Zion, the true center and the highest point of the world, is the way I put it. This is an important reality to think about. I'm not going to expand upon it now, but I want to finish with it, and we'll take it up another time. Our worship does not happen in a vacuum. 
We are drawn up the heavenly mountain in order to descend again, because there is more to creation than just the peak. Creation is held together at the center. It is governed from the highest point, which, of course, is God's throne. But there is a vast world that extends from this point, beneath this point. And much of it still needs to be properly attached, brought under the governance, integrated into the heavenly reality. And that is our job. We come into worship in order to learn the pattern of reality and take it back out again. First into our own lives, our own households, and then as we gain proficiency into everything that God gives us dominion over. Worship is the beginning of our week, the heart from which the blood of righteous dominion is pumped into the whole body, everything that we do, and in it, in worship, we learn about confession of sin being a necessity for fellowship. We learn to speak to God and to each other. We learn to celebrate and glorify what is good and to put away what is wicked. We learn the nature of mutual participation. We learn how to offer ourselves up and in doing so become part of something greater. We learn to sacrifice. And ultimately, we are shaped and formed into God-shaped vessels that can carry all of these things and more out into the world and bring heaven back down to earth so that God's will may be done on earth as we have learned that it is done in heaven.